Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tanker attack, two oil tankers are suspected of being attacked in the Gulf of Oman. All prices jump. Cyber attack in Hong Kong. The messaging app Telegram says it was disrupted amid the protests and stranger than reality. Netflix goes into gaming with its hit show, Stranger Things. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Once again, welcome to First Move, another jam-packed show for you. Right now, the energy market's on high alert with breaking news over in the Middle East. Take a look at what we're seeing right now for oil prices, up around 4% at this moment after, as I mentioned, suspected attacks on two tankers sailing through the Gulf of Oman. This, of course, coming less than a month after four tankers were attacked off the coast of the UAE. We'll get you all the details, the latest on that shortly. But for now, I want to give you a quick look at what we're seeing for the broader markets. Overall, this news at this moment not having an impact on broader risk sentiment. Futures are right now higher following two sessions of minor losses. We're on our very own J Powell pause. I think at this stage, we're waiting for direction, consolidating on a strong month of gains so far. As I keep mentioning, rate cuts and trade talks remain the key drivers. Deutsche Bank right now, though, winning the prize for predicting the most rate cuts. They're now saying the Fed will cut three times this year, July, September, and December. I've been asking all week, and you'll remember, how can the Fed cut rates at this stage when we're just some 2% off record highs? The inflation numbers were soft yesterday, and I guess that argues for more, but more data, I think, required. FactSet says firms that get more than 50% of their sales outside the US will see a near 10% drop in profits in this upcoming earnings season. I'm not sure that's been factored into stock markets right now. Speaking of stock markets, let's take a look at what we're seeing in the Asia session today. Chinese shares finished flat. Hong Kong markets stabilized. That following Wednesday's 1.7% fall. We did see smattering of more protests today in Hong Kong, but nothing like the scale that we saw on Wednesday. Some interesting developments, though, on that story, too. And that's coming up shortly, too. But for now, I want to get straight to the drivers, So starting with that breaking news in the Gulf of Oman. Gould Toy Series joins us from Abu Dhabi. Claire Sebastian also watching the energy markets for us too. Gould, just give us the details here and great to have you with us. What do we know so far? Well, at this point, we're still trying to piece together what happened to these two shipping vessels in the Gulf of Oman. This appears to be uh, an attack of some sort. At this point, we can say it's a suspected uh, attack on these two shipping vessels as they were in the Gulf of Oman. One of them is an oil tanker. The other one was carrying chemical cargo uh, when these explosions that then resulted in fires occurred. And there were, of course, crew on board both of uh, these shipping vessels. They appear to be safe at this point. Some of them are on uh, were saved by a U.S. Navy ship that was nearby, and others seem to have been aided by the Iranian Navy. There was one person who was wounded in what occurred, but at this point, we simply don't know what happened. Was this absolutely an attack? There are investigations 
ongoing by a variety of actors that, uh, of course, have a vested, uh, have an interest in what happened to these tankers, still ongoing. So there's going to be more developments coming uh, in the coming hours. But uh, at this point, we can say that both of these ships are still in the water in the Gulf of Oman, and they are floating. The crew is safe, but we're just going to have to wait to see what it is that actually caused this security incident in the Gulf of Oman. Yeah, as you said, so many unknowns at this stage, but our own reporting suggests a degree of similarity. And and I mentioned it earlier between the attacks that we saw less than a month ago on May the 12th on, on four tankers off the coast of the UAE. Can you just give us any further information on that, that the apparent and reported similarities between the two things? Absolutely. Well, this just goes to show you what a tinderbox this region is. Of course, this has been uh, tensions ratcheted up uh, about a month ago when the incident that you're talking about uh, occurred. In the the resulting investigation after that, uh, the UAE here came out in a report and said that they suspected that there was a state behind, uh, a state actor behind what happened a month ago, but didn't necessarily point the finger at any specific state. But the tensions here are are high. Just yesterday, uh, there was uh, incoming fire at a Saudi airport. And you can just see how it is that this kind of tension here in this region, in the Middle East, is starting to just slowly get more and more. Uh, The Iranians and the Saudis have been carrying out, um, have been fighting through proxies in a myriad of battlefields in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria. But these kinds of incidents, both the one that occurred last month and what seems to have happened today, could end up making it so that these the, the, that these conflicts that have been raging over proxies could become direct confrontations. And that, of course, is a very scary thought for this region. Absolutely. Everybody being very cautious here, as you said, over accusations and, and finger pointing. Not that we didn't see it last time, of course. Fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Claire, come in here, of course, because what we've seen up to this point is oil prices continuing to weaken on demand concerns, but the disruption on the supply side, including the tensions with Iran, still a hot-button issue for this market, and obviously that filtering into what we're seeing in price action today. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. I think the demand concerns are still there. That's perhaps why we haven't seen a bigger move here. The macro context is that uh, oil prices have been moving lower really since uh, the end of April on concerns about the U.S.-China trade war slowing growth uh, in some critical economies like Russia, Brazil, uh, India. OPEC actually cut uh, its demand forecast for this year in its its monthly report out today. So that is the tug of war that we see going on here. Uh, But it's interesting because when that incident happened on May 12th uh, last month, those four tankers attacked off the coast uh, of the UAE. We saw uh, a similar move lower in oil prices, but not as big uh, as the one we see today. That was uh, around the same time that we saw the real escalation in US-China trade uh, tensions. You can see at the beginning of that chart, that is where that last incident happened. At the end, you see the move today. This move today was much sharper. I think now that we're seeing something of a pattern emerging, oil investors uh, are really on notice and, and, and the risk premium does seem to be rising, Julia. Yeah, and that's such a great point, I think, Claire, because all we've seen today with a 4% rally so far is taking back the 4% losses that we saw yesterday as a result of higher inventories and the concerns over demand here. But a sense that if we are 
seeing similarities here in a pattern building, then perhaps we need to uh, continue to focus on that and perhaps more so than we have. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver, to Hong Kong now, where questions are being asked after an encrypted messaging app faced a cyber attack. Telegram, that's the name of it, was disrupted while protesters were trying to use it during demonstrations yesterday. Matt Rivers, back with us from Hong Kong. Matt, great to see us. Talk to me about what the founder of Telegram has said. He said the disruption that the app faced was emanating from China. Yeah, that is what he's saying, Julia. And let's just tell our viewers, you know, how Telegram is it was being used here. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of protesters that were relying on Telegram and specifically groups that were created uh, in Telegram to kind of get their updates on what was going on with the protests, where to go, when to stop, uh, what places to target, uh, that kind of stuff. It was really just a way to organize the thousands and thousands of, of generally younger people using the app who also wanted to be a part of that protest. And obviously authorities knew that. There were probably some authorities who were in those groups monitoring them. And so what Telegram then was saying is uh, they were under a pretty massive denial of service attack from IP addresses, according to the uh, company's founder, that were emanating from China, from mainland China. And, and uh, so that's what he was saying. Now, I guess they're working on getting Telegram restored uh, and to its full service. But clearly it was something that was being used by protesters who were very much not in favor of this extradition bill that Beijing is in favor of. And so the link there is pretty obvious. If you believe what the owner of Telegram is saying, that these denial of service attacks were originating from IP addresses in mainland China, it would seem uh, that uh, perhaps there were people in China, whether they'd be working for the government or otherwise, that were trying their best to disrupt the protests that have really gripped Hong Kong since Sunday. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, we were saying after the protests on Sunday and last night how organized and coordinated these protests look. So um, quite fascinating to understand kind of what we were seeing there, particularly in the aftermath and, and learning about this. Talk to me, though, about the debate on the extradition bill, because it was delayed once again. And we were talking about the standoff now between the protesters and whether or not the uh, Hong Kong government can bring this bill back for debate without facing more protests here. Sort of something has to give. Yeah, and we can expect that there will be more protests moving forward. Now, what happened today on Thursday here in Hong Kong uh, was that the legislature did not reconvene uh, in the Legislative Council building, and they're not expected to do so tomorrow. So the debate over this extradition bill has officially been canceled for this week. No further uh, um, confirmation in terms of when that the next debate will be scheduled. It could happen next week. But what we do know is that more protests will happen this weekend. So on Sunday, organizers are calling for another mass march uh, here in Hong Kong. It will be interesting to see what kind of numbers of people come out as opposed to last Sunday. You'll remember that's when over a million people, according to organizers, came out in Hong Kong and really kind of kicked off this series of events. And then they're also calling for another rally on Monday, presumably the next possible date that the legislature here could reconvene. But we don't have a specific date yet. I can tell you, though, Julia, that protesters are determined to fight this bill to the very end. So I can guarantee you that the next time uh, Hong Kong lawmakers go back in the LegCo building, as it's called here, they are going to face protesters. Yeah, we will continue to watch it. Matt Rivers, great job. Thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories 
that we're following around the world. The U.S. president says there's nothing wrong with accepting an offer from a foreign government to dish the dirt on a political opponent. That's despite a two-year special counsel investigation into contacts with Russians during his election campaign. In an ABC interview, Donald Trump said he wouldn't necessarily report such a contact to the FBI. Your campaign this time around, if foreigners, if Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. If somebody called from a country, Norway, we have information on your opponent. Oh, I think I'd want to hear it. Do you want that kind of interference in our elections? It's not an interference. They have information. I think I'd take it. If I thought there was something wrong, I'd go maybe to the FBI if I thought there was something wrong. But when somebody comes up with oppo research, right, they come up with oppo research. Oh, let's call the FBI. The FBI doesn't have enough agents to take care of it. But you go and talk honestly to congressmen. They all do it. They always have. And that's the way it is. It's called oppo research. Four-time Tour de France winner Chris Froome will be forced to miss this year's cycling race after a horrific crash during a practice ride Wednesday. Froome's team's general manager said he crashed into a wall going around 60 kilometres per hour. He sustained multiple serious injuries and remains in intensive care. Boris Johnson has emerged as the clear frontrunner in the race to succeed Theresa May. He was backed by 114 votes in the first stage of the process to elect a new Conservative Party leader and UK Prime Minister. His nearest rival, Jeremy Hunt, won 43 votes. Three candidates were eliminated from the running. Phil Black joins us now. It really is like a game of it's a knockout here, Phil. What next? How quickly are we going to narrow this down to two candidates? And, and Boris certainly looks way out in front at this stage. Yeah, that's right, Julia. So we should know by the end of next week who the final two are. And the clear takeaway from today is, is Boris's big win, 114 votes. Uh, clearly, uh, he is, as suspected, the candidate to beat. Or put another way, it's his contest uh, to lose. Because if he does maintain that level of support, that sort of momentum, then he should undoubtedly uh, be among those final two who are then voted on by the broader Conservative Party membership. But as is often pointed out, Boris Johnson is an often unpredictable politician whose greatest nemesis can sometimes be himself. But you'd have to think, based upon that, that he'd really have to mess up over the coming week to not make it down to the final two. The other big takeaway is that everyone else is a long way behind. Jeremy Hunt, the current Foreign Secretary, he is the closest uh, on 43. So in the coming days, you will see remaining candidates, well, scrambling to try and win the support of those who voted for the three candidates who were knocked out today. But they were people who were clearly voting for hard Brexit politicians. So it's only likely that a handful are likely to attract them as uh, supporters. Uh, and it's also uh, possible that you will see some reflective uh, thinking over the weekend or so. As some of those who survived today but perhaps didn't do as well as they'd hoped consider whether or not they should continue in this contest or perhaps simply bow out, throw their support behind one of the bigger beasts in the hope of securing uh, a big government job in, in, uh, yes. in the victor's uh, future government. So, uh, as I say, all of this we should know by the end of next week because that's when you'll get the final two. They then go out and campaign across the country uh, and to try and win the support of an electorate of just 160,000 people. That is the Conservative Party membership who will not only be choosing their next leader, but of course the next British Prime Minister, Julie. 
you know, I think for everybody watching this outside of the UK and for investors in particular, what they ultimately care about at the core of this is whether or not we risk seeing the UK leaving the EU on October 31st without a deal. What are the two most likely candidates, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, saying about that prospect? And what are the noises around them of perhaps Parliament stepping in to prevent that or the Conservative Party itself deciding that that's actually not what they want to do to the UK at this stage? What do we think? Yeah, it's undoubtedly one of the key issues in this campaign because the Conservative Party is broadly more pro-Brexit than the broader uh, electorate in this country. And so... All, the, all those contenders, pretty much, exist on a scale of enthusiasm for a no-deal scenario, bar a couple of the candidates. Boris Johnson is at one end where he's saying, quite simply, that is something that we should be prepared to do, although he's saying it's not his preferred option. Jeremy Hunt is towards the he'd accept it, but with a heavy heart end uh, of the spectrum. So in order to have credibility among Conservative voters who are ultimately deciding this contest, it is seen by many of the candidates that they must be willing to embrace this at least as an idea. Parliament itself, well, it tried yesterday, led by the Labour Party and other opposition parties, to try and block that outcome, to try and prevent uh, the future Prime Minister pursuing a no-deal scenario. It lost that vote. And now, at this stage, it is unclear if Parliament has any levers left to try and uh, to try and stop that outcome. But there is no doubt that there are members of Parliament who are committed to stopping that at all costs. Uh, and you're right in terms of business. It is the most feared scenario because it is simply the one with the greatest uncertainty, Julie. Yeah, the wrangling and the wrestling gives me a heavy heart. Phil Black, thank you so much for that. We will continue to watch that too. Now, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But when we return, U.S. states making a threat on tech, warning Silicon Valley's biggest companies a crackdown could be coming from them. Plus, CrowdStrike strikes it rich. Software security firm soaring in its market debut. My conversation with the CEO coming up after this. Stay with us. first move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange where we are looking at a positive open after two straight sessions of uh, what relatively unchanged to a touch lower. We've got some key data coming up between the United States and China on Friday. Both countries reporting industrial production and retail sales numbers, so we'll watch for those. In the session today, keep an eye on energy stocks. Right now, pre-market, they're moving higher, along, of course, with the price of oil. Both Brent and WTI currently up around 3.5%. We continue to monitor the news out of the Gulf of Oman, where there are two tankers, of course, that have come under suspected attack, as we were discussing earlier on in the show. The counter to what we're seeing there and continuing the momentum that we had been seeing in the oil markets, OPEC today cutting its outlook for global oil demand because of the impact of the trade wars. It says forecasts could be cut further in the coming months too. Wow, there's a lot going on. Let's get some context. Jeffrey Kleintop joins us now. He's the Senior Vice President and Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Jeffrey, fantastic to have you on the show. As I mentioned, there is a lot going on. You point out in your recent notes that actually the timing here of the trade war couldn't have come at a worse time. And now you can throw in Middle East tension here as well. What do you make of it and what most concerns you? 
there are so many factors right now in the context of a vulnerable global economic backdrop. We've gotten uh, the global manufacturing sector has declined 13 months in a row. The leading economic indicator from the OECD is now at 99. That's been the threshold at which global recessions have started. Each of the last seven started right around when that index fell to 99. There's so many other factors I could point to, including a weaker jobs report on Friday here in the U.S. and slumping retail sales in many places. I'd note that even in China, uh, auto sales are now falling year over year pretty dramatically, double-digit percentage declines. So it's a vulnerable global economic backdrop to then factor in the threat of a trade war, uh, increasing tensions with Iran over its uh, concerns over its nuclear negotiations. Of course, North Korea is still out there and could stir up conflict as well, in addition to Brexit and so many other factors. So the global economic backdrop is vulnerable to any one of these shocks, but we don't just have one, we have several. You know, it's interesting. The counter to that would be, if we bring it back to the United States for a moment, that actually consumer confidence has remained pretty high, that actually they've been pretty resilient in the face of all these broader concerns. You kind of have a counter to that, too, and say, actually, that can be a warning sign, too, at this point in the cycle. Talk me through that. Yeah, maybe they're a little too confident. Um, confidence is very high. In fact, it's it's in line with levels we've seen before. Uh, for example, we saw it in 07, 2000, and back in 1990, right before the recessions uh, began, uh, maybe six months later after we saw those levels of confidence. So we're at a point now where consumers are maybe vulnerable to uh, to starting to uh, worry a little bit more and that maybe they're as confident as they're likely to be. By the way, it's not just the U.S. We see that in European consumer confidence surveys and in Japan as well. You know, it's interesting, if we look at the past couple of months in particular, the relative outperformance that we've seen in emerging markets here, and you have some great charts to show some of the import substitution that we're seeing. Yes, the United States is importing less from China, but it's importing a lot more from other countries like Mexico, like Vietnam. Talk me through this, because you make a really quite fascinating point about this, and perhaps that's playing into what we're seeing in the markets too. Yeah, it's interesting. We can even trace product categories like auto parts, for example. Auto part shipments from China have really fallen dramatically, but they've picked up very sharply from other Asian providers in Mexico and other emerging markets as well. So it appears that as China is losing share, so to speak, in, in exports to the U.S., many other emerging markets are picking up that share. So it's not going back to domestic U.S. production. It seems that other emerging markets are picking up the slack. So we're going from some one emerging market business, say, in China to another one in another country. And that might mean that emerging markets may fare a little better through this trade war concern than many investors had feared, or at least had feared back in uh, April and early May. If we see the Federal Reserve cut rates, does that add an extra kicker here or does that add some broader cautiousness if they've got a reason to do it ultimately? What do you expect from the Federal Reserve this year? Because the range of options are broad. Yeah, they sure are. Uh, You know, it's certainly looking more and more likely that the Fed may cut rates one or even two times later this year. But I think we have to reflect on what that's meant in the past. You know, in the past, when the Fed cut rates uh, for the first time after hiking them for a while, I think back to to 2007, that didn't stop the 08 or 09 global recession. Uh, When they cut in January of 01, that certainly didn't stop the recession that began just three months later in March of 2001. So uh, I'm not sure that the markets are going to embrace this as, uh, as, as saving the day, but certainly they're hopeful that the Fed may lend some support to an economy clearly showing some signs of weakness.
Yeah, 2% away from record highs. I think there's a lot of hope here that the Federal Reserve will save the day, to, to, to use your terminology there. Jeffrey, fantastic to have you on First Move. Jeffrey Klein, top Thanks, there with his context on the market. So, right, we are counting down to the market open this morning. We are anticipating a positive start for the first time in three sessions. Do we get it? Well, we'll see. And we'll take a look back on what we're seeing in the Middle East too. Stay with us. You're watching First Move and the market open is next. live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell this Thursday and we do see a higher open for stocks. The Bulls hoping to break a two-day losing streak. Can we do it? We shall see. The new evidence today that uh, US inflation remains muted. Uh, good sign if it, you're the Federal Reserve and are looking to perhaps create some more easing room here. We saw US import prices falling some 0.3% in May. The largest drop in fact this year and a greater drop than expected thanks perhaps to a continued strong US dollar. It follows that same consumer inflation net data that we got on Wednesday too. Let's uh, move on and also take a look once again at what's going on in oil prices at this moment. Oil prices surging higher by more than 3%. This we've been discussing on the show after suspected attacks on two tankers in the Gulf of Amman. Less than a month, of course, after four tankers were attacked off the coast of the United Arab Emirates. Nick Robertson joins me now. Nick, just once again, what details do we have on the attacks that we've seen in the Gulf of Oman today, or the suspected attacks, I should say? And I know you were over there on and around May the 12th and saw what happened with those four tankers. So talk me through potential similarities here too. Sure. There are similarities. These are commercial vessels that were targeted. Um, that they're on the same sea, the uh, the Gulf of Oman. Um, but there are significant dissimilarities, if you will. Um, significantly, the last attack, the ships were at anchor. They were targeted with relatively small mines that appeared to be placed on the vessels magnetically overnight. They went off in the morning. These vessels today are huge oil tankers and a chemical tanker that were moving through the sea that were struck, it appears from the picture, from the videos that we've seen, um, to have been struck broadside on. Significantly, the last attacks, no one was injured, no one was forced off the vessels. This time, the crews, all 44 total crew members from these two ships, had to abandon ship. One of the crew members was injured. And the accounts that we're hearing coming from those ships are on one account of one of the ship being targeted by some sort of shell, and the account from that ship saying that there was two of these shells that hit the ship. And the, aboard the other ship, the account is indicating that there were three, they, that they heard three different explosions um, uh, targeting or hitting the ship, if you will. So um, this seems to be a significant escalation of what we saw happen before. Last time, close to the coast of the Emirates, the ships at anchor, this time the ships passing um, much closer to the coast of Iran, and this time on way to their destinations uh, full of, of fuel and chemicals. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for uh, bringing us up to speed on that and giving us context, of course. And to Nick's point there, the fact 
that the markets aren't waiting around to uh, decipher this suggests, as Claire was saying earlier as well, we're seeing a perhaps bigger reaction than we saw back in May 12th in terms of oil prices here, starting to look a little bit like a pattern. Any further information, we will bring it to you. But for now, let me give you a look at what we're seeing in terms of the global movers in the session today. Dry ships, the cargo ship operator shares skyrocketing pre-market after receiving a buyout proposal from SBI Holdings. That company is controlled by Dry Ships CEO. The special committee of the independent directors will consider the proposal. I mentioned a pre-market there, of course, but now the markets are open. Stick with me. It's been a long week. Twitter also in focus. Uh, Muffet Nathanson analysts reiterating their bearish call, saying now is an opportune time to sell the stock. It claims the social network isn't spending enough on safety. The stock, meanwhile, up some 30% so far this year. CrowdStrike. Keep an eye on this one. The security software vendor soared as much as 97% in its first day of trading yesterday, even after pricing the shares at the high end of the expected range. It ended up closing up more than 70% from its IPO price, pushing its market cap above $11 billion. The CrowdStrike CEO told me that the company is here to stop breaches, not to set the stock price. I asked him whether he was pleased or unhappy with that kind of rally in the share price on the first day of trading because did he leave some money on the table? His response was pretty cute. I also asked him what he's going to do with the money. Listen in. We continue to invest in our platform, and I think that's one of the key areas that really differentiates what we've done versus the rest of the industry. We've really built out the first true cloud security platform. And, um, I, you know, I think it's one of those areas where the customer demand has, has shown itself. So we want to continue to build that out on the R&D side. Uh, we want to continue to expand our geographic reach. Uh, obviously, we started in the U.S. and now we have offices around the world, but we want to be able to make sure that we can service customers around the globe. Talk to me about the competition in this space, because you've said, look, this is going to be a $35 billion industry over the next couple of years. But I look at some of the competition and I think it's fierce. Are enough companies looking at using your kind of technology, so cloud-based, to detect attempted security breaches, the risks surrounding a company here, or are you facing pretty stiff competition? Well, I, I think you have to look at other industries and, and where there's been seismic shifts in just technology changes. If you look at Siebel versus Salesforce, that move to the cloud was, was really a structural shift. Uh, and you've seen the results. And I think we're seeing the same thing in security. Uh, in the past, security has really been a point product solution, trying to identify malware instead of really focusing it at the platform level and trying to prevent breaches. It's much different when you think about it that way. Preventing a breach is much more important uh, than preventing malware. Malware is obviously important, but it's a subset of preventing a breach. And I think that's what we've been able to really do uh, to capture our, our, uh, our customers and their mindshare is we're, we're providing a, an incredibly valuable technology and service in an area where the, ever, the, the landscape on the, uh, on the threat side is, is ever evolving. $11 billion market cap, potential size of the business, the uh, sector in total, $35 billion, not making money. Well, I know about valuations, but something there is uh, surprising to me. All right, let's move on. Your states are joining the fight to rein in big tech. Several reportedly launching investigations into giants such as Facebook and Google. Haddas Gold joins us now. Haddas, the idea that we could have 50 different states trying to regulate these big tech giants in their own way seems pretty mind-boggling to me. What are they planning here, or at least what are they saying? 
Julia, it can be a bit of a regulatory headache for these tech companies because, as you're right, there could be 50 different front lines. Now, it probably won't reach that level of 50 separate cases, but states have their own antitrust laws. Now, they often mirror the federal antitrust laws, but they can sue just like the federal government can. And often you'll see states join up with the federal government signing on to some of their antitrust cases. I'll point out that, for example, the AT&T Time Warner case, no state signed up onto that antitrust case, which gave a signal of how that how many state AGs thought this was going to go. But this week, actually, attorney generals from 41 states, D.C. and Guam, they signed a letter to the Federal Trade Commission urging that large tech platforms hold too much personal data, and that insulates them from competition and makes it harder for startups. They're trying to convince the federal authorities to go harder against these tech companies. And what we see is actually state attorney generals are often sort of the front lines on a lot of these cases before the feds get in on it. And what we heard from including one attorney general from Nebraska, he said that the states, they need to move fast. They're taking on the mantra that we know so well from Facebook. They want to move fast and then see if they should break things up, Julia. Yeah, it's such a great point if you want to try and level the playing field to some degree. But, you know, one of the big questions for me as we head into 2020 elections is, is this what the voters want? I saw a poll from the Progressive Policy Institute saying the majority of voters don't want to tackle big tech. They don't want to limit innovation. Fascinating. Julie? Yeah, Julia, it's really interesting. When you look into some of these poll numbers, you see a lot of people getting very wary of tech companies and very wary of how they handle their personal data. But then when you ask them about certain things like, oh, well, are you willing to pay uh, for your personal data to be protection? You get different answers. And then when it comes to breaking up big tech, there was actually a recent uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll, which found uh, almost a split, 50 to 47 percent, 50 percent saying that big tech shouldn't be broken up. They were asking specifically regarding Elizabeth Warren's plan She's a candidate, a Democratic a presidential candidate. She wants to break big tech up. And people are a little bit more unsure about whether they want to break big tech up. Another question asked about whether it should be the free market or the governments who sort of level the playing field here. And more than 60 percent said they think the free, the free market should be the one to level the playing field, Julia. Wow. Love that. Hannah Gold, great insight. Thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but uh, coming up, two years old and worth more than $2 billion. We'll be talking to the 22-year-old co-founder of a credit card unicorn. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The fintech unicorn Brex gives credit cards to startups without personal guarantees or deposits. It's only two years old and it's launched its first product around 12 months ago, although it's already valued at $2.6 billion. It's now expanding into other areas like cards for e-commerce companies, but the competition is fierce from both traditional players like American Express and rival startups too. Joining us now in the chat room is Enrique Dubregat. He's the co-CEO and co-founder of Brex. Fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Where did the idea come from? So we were in this accelerator program called Y Combinator um, we, that we actually came in with a completely different idea. And within Y Combinator, we saw that all our peers there, they had raised like millions of dollars and they couldn't get a credit card. And we thought, that doesn't make any sense. Why can you like raise millions of dollars and not get a card? So that's kind of how the idea sparked. So then you dumped the idea that you went there with and you were like, actually, I can see a real problem 
with this group of people and we can fix that. Yes, exactly. So how much spending traditionally do people do? Because I think this was a problem after the financial crisis for any individual. If you didn't tick a certain set of boxes, you struggled to get credit, even if behind that you had assets or wealth or ideas that, that could provide it. So it depends a lot, right? Because some of our companies are small startups with two people. And then they spend not a lot, but a lot of them actually grow a lot into companies of hundreds or thousands of employees. And then there's a lot more spend. So the average is not a metric we track too much, but um, it varies according to the size of the company. You're not worried enough or you don't need to be worried. How do you judge the risk that they present? Because that for any credit card company, whether it's you guys or American Express or somebody, that's the key here. So there's two main insights for us judging the risk. The yeah. first one is we don't bucket all companies in like one SMB basket. We say, hey, we understand that startups are different than restaurants, they're different than hotels. So we evaluate risk for them differently. Okay. So that is like one. So for startups, the main way we look for it is their cash balances. So let's say you're a startup, you have a lot of cash, we'll give you a card. If you don't have cash, we won't. Very simple. <laughs> um, so that's one. The second way we do it is that traditionally banks had this what we call a static underwriting model, in which they look at your financial history and then they give you a limit and then based on that, um, you know, that's basically your limit for the next two years. What we do is that we reevaluate every customer every day based on new information that we get. So because we have a lot less risk by doing that, we can then have no personal guarantee and much higher limits than everybody else. Okay, so talk to me about expansion plans then. Initially startups, but we just mentioned there, e-commerce companies. There are other people now that are looking at using this card. What makes you different? What makes you special? Um, so, you know, we just launched Life Sciences, actually our newest release in terms of cards. So, you know, pharmaceutical, cosmetics, like all these new kind of health and life sciences now can use Brex too. Right. Um, in terms of differentiation, as I said, we give, you require no personal guarantee, much higher limits than everybody else, and our technology is actually the best. So it's really easy, really easy to do your expenses, really easy. Um, to add users, remove users, set limits, controls, things like that. Cost. How much does it cost to use your card? Um, it's $5 per user per month. Okay, but what about interest cost? Um, it's a charge card, so you have to pay it in full by the end of the statement. Okay. So you cannot keep a balance there. So you don't, charge, you don't charge interest in that interim, but at the end of the month, the balance has to be clear. Exactly. Aha! Now that's the best way to manage risk exactly. there. What happens if they don't pay the balance? Um, then we just shut down the card. So if they don't pay the balance, you say, guys, pay yeah, ASAP. But that doesn't really happen because 100% uh, of our customers are auto pay. It's actually, uh, most of our customers see that as a feature. They don't have to remember to every month to go and pay. It just kind of takes care of itself. Have you ever had to take a card away from someone? Um, well, yeah, I think companies go out of business from time yeah. to time. And uh, we have a very frank conversation. And they're actually happy that they have no personal liability there. But they have to pay the money back. But they have to pay the money back. Okay. $2.6 billion valuation. Does that make you nervous? Um, obviously a little bit, but we're still super confident in the company. What conversations are you having with investors? I mean, you're 23 years old. Yes. Um, I think that, you know, investors are super excited about the size of the opportunity. Yeah. If you just look, you know, in the US, the size of the market in terms of um, commercial cards is around $12 billion in revenue per year. Yes. That's not like market cap, it's like real revenue opportunity, right? Um, and there has no one that disrupted that market so far. So if you see companies like Stripe on the online markets or Square in the offline markets disrupting the online payments and offline payments market, 
the corporate credit card market is as big and still haven't been disrupted. So that gets them very excited. What's the risk that an American Express or a Visa just replicates your model and goes, you know what, we can come up with the same technology, we can do it, and we can probably do it cheaper? There's definitely a, um, a risk there. Um, but if you look historically, banks haven't adapted that fast to startups and fintech. The reason being, um, it's, they have systems and technology that was built 30 years ago, and it's really hard to adapt. Um, so because we rebuilt all our systems from scratch you know, two years ago, um, it's easier for us to build new functionality versus for them to migrate something really big and you know, old is, is much harder. They could always buy you. Are you having conversations with them about being bought? The only way this company is um, exiting is through IPO. Why? Um, we sold the company before yeah. uh, starting Brex. So um, we started this company last year of high school and we worked in it for three and a half years, sold it. Um, and for this company now, we decided that we want to run it for the rest of our lives. So. You, you, want, you want to go public and you want to be on that Yeah, stand. I, I like that, that feeling that was just happening right there. Seems really cool. <laughs> Something tells me you might be there. Great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Torches. Wowzers. That's the only thing I can say about that conversation. <laughs> the CEO of Brexit, Enrique. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to take a break. Up next, Netflix turns gaming upside down. Stranger things have happened. That's a pretty big clue. Stay with us. We'll have all the details. Welcome back to First Move and a look at today's boardroom brief. Walmart is overhauling the online retailer Jet.com and says it will absorb most of the company with its online business. Walmart bought the startup for more than $3 billion in 2016. The president of Jet.com, Simon Belsham, is set to leave the company in August. Lululemon shares are racing higher after the sportswear maker raised its outlook for the year. The company told investors that it's on a roll and expects to make more than $3.5 billion this financial year. It's right now up some 5%. Wow. Netflix is turning its smash hit series Stranger Things into a video game set in the shadowy upside-down world. Netflix's latest move is likely to spook players and the gaming industry too. Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, I've got a confession. I've never watched Stranger Things, but I hear really great things about it. Talk to me about their foray now into gaming. Yeah, this is a fantastic show, by the way. I'm very excited for season three. And what's really fascinating here, Julia, is that the game that Netflix just announced is going to be a mobile game. 2020, it's coming out. And it sounds a lot like Pokemon Go. It's going to be a location-based puzzle game. So what we're actually going to be looking for and the clues we're trying to find is going to be fascinating to see. It's apparently set in the very shadowy upside down uh, area, which is uh, you know very important to fans of the show. But this is not the only game that Netflix has tied to Stranger Things. They have another one that's a more traditional console game that's also gonna be on PCs and mobile that's coming out on July 4th tied to season three's release date. And that's gonna be a retro game kind of modeled more like Super Nintendo's games from the 90s, uh, which should be pretty interesting since this is a show set in the uh, you know, mid-80s. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? How damaging can Netflix be to this segment? I mean, we've seen them disrupt TV viewing with their streaming offering so comprehensively. What do we think about their entry into gaming here, particularly given, as you point out, they have got great content that they can play with here. 
Yeah, I think that Netflix is going to be very careful with what they decide to uh, make games out of. There's another game they're developing off of the Dark Crystal series, you know, based on the new uh, cartoon that's coming out that was, uh, you know, based on a very popular Jim Henson Dark Crystal movie from the 80s. But I don't think you're going to see Netflix go crazy here. Like, an Orange is the New Black prison game? Not so sure that's a great idea, so I wouldn't expect that. But I think that Netflix, particularly with their, you know, kids-themed shows and a show like Stranger Things that attracts all ages and has that 80s retro feel, that could be a natural fit for Netflix to do more games out of. Yes, got to be careful with it. Your choice is here. Now, speaking of excitement over that July the 4th launch of the latest series of uh, Stranger Things, Burger King is getting in on the the, uh, action here. What a whopper. Take a look at this. Paul, how do you feel about this? An upside-down hamburger. Yeah, they've got the basically the bottom bun on top. They flipped it, a nod to the upside down of Stranger Things. I do wonder whether or not there'll be an impossible version, even though obviously plant-based food was not a thing in the 80s, so to speak. You just had bad veggie burgers as opposed to the more authentic meat-like food that we get from Impossible and Beyond Meat now. But there are so many companies latching onto this. It's not just Burger King. Coke is even bringing back new Coke, the disaster that that was for <laughs> the launch of Stranger Things, because that debuted in the mid-80s when the show is set as well. I love that we're having a serious debate about this. I mean, all they did was flip the thing. It's just upside down. It would be an accident if it weren't a great PR opportunity. Paul Monica with his impossible burger there, too. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. All right, we have to wrap up the show. Quick look once again at what we're seeing in the energy markets, the oil markets in response to the breaking news that we've been talking about throughout the show, of course. Two tankers are suspected of being attacked there. More to come on the Express in a couple of hours. But for now... That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.